0: Please have Psalm 14 open in front of you this evening, that's page 549 in the Bibles you've got there in the pews, and we are going to be considering, as advertised, the fool's heart, the fool's heart. Uh, Some of you will be familiar with G.K. Chesterton, uh, that uh, author and satirist and all-around clever fellow. And one time he is alleged to have said that if there were no God, then there would be no atheists, which is, of course, a way of turning on its head what we read here in verse 1, because it's the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. But the fool, as a fool, is mistaken, is deadly wrong in that claim. And this psalm, begins there and moves us forward. And what we'll see this evening, I hope, is that we begin with a lament, a lament over the fool and his heart. And what that means for the fool himself, or herself, but also for God's people, and drives us forward so that by the end of the psalm we come to a cry for deliverance a cry for deliverance, so a lament that issued in a cry for deliverance, but all of it driven by this claim made by the fool that there is no God. So we want to consider this evening what it is that Scripture teaches us here in this psalm about the fool's heart, and we'll do that by looking at three things in this psalm. First of all, the fool's heart itself. Secondly, the fool's God And thirdly, the fool's hope. And as we move through the psalm, it is my hope that we will find ourselves challenged but also encouraged and equipped to stand firm and even to engage with those fools around us as we seek to point them and ourselves to the gospel and cry out for that salvation that we'll see in verse seven. So the fool's heart is our topic this evening. Before we go further, let me just pray once more, please. Lord, we ask this evening that you would do the work that only you can do, that you would remove from our eyes the scales that keep us from seeing you, from knowing the truth, that you would remove from our hearts that hardness that leads us to deny you, to obscure your truth, and that you would speak clearly and powerfully, into our hearts and minds. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, first of all, let's have a look at the fool's heart. And we see very clearly in verses 1, 3, and 4 much truth about what it is that makes the fool's heart tick and what it is uh, that the fool's predicament entails. So, first of all, we need to ask ourselves, who is this fool that the psalm speaks of this fool who says there is no god well it depends on the perspective doesn't it because actually we know in our own day don't we that there are plenty who would call themselves titles like the new atheists even in this country people like richard dawkins who in many ways is nobody's fool and an oxford don who is highly educated brilliant in so many ways, and yet who claims, just as this figure in verse 1, that there is no God, and who in fact claims that those of us who think that there is a God, who think that this is God's word that we hold in our hands, that we, in fact, are the fools. But from the perspective of God's truth, from God's revealed word, it is instead these people like Dawkins, like others, Stephen Fry, who are so vocal in their atheism, they are the fools from God's perspective. And we must pause there and think, it is not simply an intellectual foolishness which is in view, is it, here, in verse 1. Men and women, people can be very, very clever, very clever, very educated, very savvy, very successful in this world and still be fools. Because what it is to be a fool from God's perspective is to deny God himself. That is what makes a fool according to verse 1 because it is the fool who says in his heart "Or there is no God. So what constitutes a fool then according to verses 1, verses 3 and 4? Well, let's just read those and look. Verse one, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then you do see in our translation there, there's an end to the quotation. And instead we move into a description in the second half of verse one. A description of those who make that claim. So what does this tell us then in the second half of verse one about those fools who deny God? It tells us first they are corrupt. They are morally corrupt. To be a fool in this respect is not simply not to see the truth. It's not simply intellectual. It's also a matter of the heart. It's a moral problem. And the denial of God corrupts the way that these people live. It corrupts their moral sense, their moral compass. They have become corrupt, we're told. Their deeds are vile. The things that they do are evil and vile deeds. In fact, even those things that they do which in the world's eyes seem to be laudable are not pleasing to God because they are done from a heart and from from a motivation that denies the reality of God and his lordship. Furthermore, we're told at the end of verse 1, there is no one among them who does good. What does verse 3 teach us about these fools? All have turned aside. That is, they have turned away from the living God, from his reality, from his presence, from his claim upon their lives, and they have denied that they are accountable to him. They have turned aside, and they go their own way. They deny the fact that they owe any obedience to God. They think that simply because... They deny him in their hearts that that frees them from any kind of moral accountability. And, of course, that's what Romans 3, inciting these verses, does, doesn't it? We heard, as Adrian read that earlier, that the fool, and in fact all of us in our own sin, left to our own devices, are counted as fools, that all of us, have denied, in some sense, God's claim upon our lives. We've denied that we are accountable to him in all that we do, all that we say, all that we think. But the one who goes on stubbornly resisting the Lord's claim upon his or her life is a fool, according to verse 3. They've turned aside. They have altogether become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do you hear the repetition in this psalm driving the point home? That when you have denied God, you have gone completely off track. There is nothing good down that road. Verse 4, will evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread. What else is true of the fool? It's also true that of of the fool that they persecute God's people they devour God's people like bread this psalm tells us and perhaps some of you have had that experience the experience of those unbelievers maybe colleagues maybe co-workers maybe even family members maybe those in government who have denied God and Further, they have persecuted you, have made you feel in some way that they have power over you. That, according to this psalm, is also a result of the fool denying God. So the fool is morally corrupt, is intellectually mistaken, and often tries to wield power over God's people, according to verses 1, 3, and 4 in this psalm. But as we saw right from the beginning... In verse 1, the problem for the fool is a heart problem. It's a problem of spiritual blindness. There is a great uh, little section at the end of those uh, Narnia books, perhaps you've read them by C.S. Lewis. In the last battle, the very last book, we were rereading this recently uh, with my kids at home. And if you know this story, you know that it revolves around a false god uh, and, in fact, um an attempt to say that all gods are the same. And eventually there's a stable that's set up up upon the top of a hill into which people go to worship this unknown false god as he is held forth by the name of Tash in the stories. But by the end of that story, it is all those who are true to Aslan, the true Uh, the true lion who represents the Lord Jesus in the stories allegorically, who are thrown into that stable with the hope from their enemies that they will be devoured, just as the psalm says, devoured like bread. They hope that by casting them in to this demonic false god who dwells within the stable, they will be devoured. But in fact, what happens instead, if you've read the story, you know this, is that as they enter in, They enter into Aslan's kingdom in a new and powerful way. Their bonds fall away. They can see with new eyes. They enter through a door into what is the equivalent in the story of a new heaven and a new earth. And it's a wonderful experience for those. But at the same time, in that stable, there are some dwarves. And again, if you know the story, you know where this goes. The, The dwarves have denied Aslan. In fact, they've been sort of agnostic stroke atheist through the entire story. They say, we don't want Aslan, we don't want Tash, we don't need any god. The dwarves for the dwarves. We take care of ourselves. And as they stand there in the stable, they cannot see the reality of the light of Aslan's country before them. And even as those who can see it try to help them, they deny that they can see anything. All they see is darkness, darkness, All they smell are the smells of a stable, not the smells of the sweet trees and flowers growing around them. Because in their spiritual selfishness, stubbornness, and blindness, they can't see the truth. And that's the problem. That's the problem that this psalm puts its finger right upon. And the same is true of what we read in Romans 3. The problem is not simply that the fool, the one who doesn't acknowledge, doesn't bend the knee to God, the problem isn't simply that they need more information. The problem isn't simply that a different kind of argument in the conversation would persuade them. The problem is they are spiritually blind. They cannot see the truth. They cannot acknowledge God. Their hearts are dead, stone, hardened, stubborn. And they deny God because of that spiritual hardness, that spiritual blindness. I want us to pause this evening just to consider why it is, why it is in our culture, in in London, in the 21st century, in the West, that this kind of foolishness continues to seem so plausible. Yes, we know. We know that there is at, at root a spiritual blindness, that only God supernaturally, by his word, by his spirit, can change. It's only God's spirit who can take away the blindness. It's only God's spirit who can give a new heart of flesh and take that heart of stone. And yet, as we interact with people every day, as we go to our workplaces, as we go to the places that we study, we interact with people who deny God, don't we? Why is that so seemingly plausible, so reasonable according to the way that our world around us thinks? Well, I think there are a few reasons for that. The first of all is exactly what Romans 3 does with this psalm in unpacking it. It tells us that this heart problem is also a problem that twists our way of thinking, that there are effects of sin in our minds, in our way of thinking, as well as in our hearts that prevent us from seeing the truth. And they lead us... This way of thinking leads us to false assumptions, unbiblical assumptions about this life. For example, to thinking that we, as men, as women, are masters of our own destiny, that we make our own opportunities, that we are the ones responsible for our own successes. Have you heard that? Have you sensed that in any of those around you during the week who deny God? Isn't that the assumption? The assumption is they don't need God, even if God's out there. Even if they aren't philosophical atheists, they don't deny the possibility that God exists. They are practical atheists. They don't need God. That's the assumption that's driven by thinking that they on their own can take care of themselves and provide all that they need in this life it's a false assumption and it's an assumption that's worth bringing into the conversation sometimes as we speak with those co-workers where where for example you might ask where do you think that you have gotten all these blessings in your life from uh, this is what i like to think of as the problem of thankfulness when we would when when i was originally uh doing my theological education and then pastoring at a church in Boston many years ago now, there was a, a, a beautiful and ridiculous bumper sticker on the back of vehicles that was very popular in New England at the time. And it was um, it was sort of purple background and white lettering. Uh, and it said, Thanks, B! Exclamation point. And it had different kinds of fancy lettering. Thanks, B! That was the message, and as you noted, the people who drove the vehicles with this, and as you chatted to them, even as we did from time to time, you realized that these were people who loved the beautiful world around us. They were, they were sensing that there are so many good things in life to be grateful for: health, their homes, their families, the the natural world around us, beautiful art, beautiful music. And they had an urge welling up within them to give thanks. Thanks be! exclamation point. Well, there's an obvious question there, isn't there, for us to ask them? Thanks be to whom? To give thanks, to say thank you, is to interact with a person. The person who has made it possible for you to enjoy the things that you are so thankful for. I was struck by this even coming down tonight as I got off the bus to change at the tube station. Several people said to the driver, thank you, as they got off. In some ways, very un-British. But there were several thank yous shouted loudly from the back of the bus. Does that make any sense if the bus is driving itself? If it's an automatic, automated machine? Even less if it's simply there by chance. right? Doesn't it only make sense to say thank you to a person? And who is there that we could possibly give thanks to for all the blessings in our lives? If not, to the one who has created this world and who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, those of us who are in Christ. But even those of our colleagues and co-workers who do not know God, there's an opportunity here. And I urge you to take that opportunity in conversation to ask them, who do you, who do you thank for the good things in life? Because... It might just lead you to a conversation that could help a fool to see their folly, to see the folly that they are thankful with no one to give thanks to. There might be other conversations you could have along those lines perhaps this week. Uh, Just like we've seen there's a problem of thanksgiving, there's also, uh, isn't there a problem of justice? So many people who are rightly disturbed at the injustices that we see around us day in and day out. The injustices we read about each day in the newspapers. And yet what sense does it make if there is no God to rail against injustice? If there is no God and if Dawkins is right, if the evolutionary biologists, the new atheists are right and we have simply by chance evolved from What was there? It makes absolutely no sense to speak of justice and injustice. Perhaps injustice is simply another evolutionary advantage. The same for morality. Do you see opportunities here, I hope, that the fool's heart is darkened, but by God's common grace, we are placed in relationships with fools of this kind each and every day. And by God's grace, we are no longer those kinds of fools. We once were, but praise God, we have been taken from that kind of foolishness and been made wise in the Lord Jesus. We can see the truth now, but in our interactions with these people, the Lord creates a space in conversation for us. To pursue these kinds of thoughts, to show the inconsistencies and the folly in the thoughts of a fool who says there is no God. If there is no God, none of these things make sense. So I urge you this week, as you have those conversations with those around you, would you prayerfully consider asking the Lord to help you to show those fools their folly? to show them the inconsistencies, morally and intellectually, of the position of atheism, whether it's philosophical or practical atheism. The fool says in his or her heart, there is no God. But we need to say to those around us, don't be fools. Don't be foolish. God says in his word that you are a fool if you deny him. Let's talk about that and what that implies for you and for your life. So we need to engage biblically with those fools around us whom we love and whom God has placed in our lives. That's the first application for us from our text this evening. But we move now and more quickly from the fool's heart to the fool's God. Because not only does this psalm teach us what is inside a fool's heart and what the uh, what the consequences of that foolishness are for God's people, It also teaches us about the fool's God. Because the psalm does not for a moment concede an inch. There is a God, isn't there? And this God looks down upon the fool. What does verse 2 say? Verse 2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And then we know, uh, again in verses 5 and 6, More about this God who looks down on the fool. We know that when God is present in the company of the righteous, these fools are overwhelmed with dread. And further, verse 6, that this God frustrates the plans of these foolish evildoers. Because the Lord is the refuge for the poor, for his people. So do you see what we're taught in this psalm about the fool's God? First of all, he gazes down upon the fool. The fool may not believe in God, but I'm sorry to tell them God believes in the fool. God knows the fool. God made that fool, and God is watching and gazing down from heaven. And that gaze with which God looks down upon us all from heaven is either a gaze of wrath and condemnation that lies heavy upon us as humans if we deny God or a gaze of blessing and security and salvation if we are in Christ and we see both of those things with this same phrase that the psalmist uses elsewhere in the old testament first of all we see uh, we see in exodus chapter 14 that the same phrase of god looking down is used in judgment In Exodus 14, what has happened? Well, God is bringing His people out of Egypt, and He appears visibly in a pillar of cloud and fire. And in chapter 14 of Exodus, verse 24, we're told that the Lord looks down out of this pillar of cloud upon the Egyptians, and He routs them with panic. Do you see? That's the same, that's the same phrase used here in our Psalm in verse 2. The fool may not see God, but God sees the fool, and God judges the fool in his folly. To be a fool under the gaze of God is to stand under God's wrath and condemnation. And as soon as the fool begins even to catch a glimmer of that reality, the fool quakes and shudders and falls into panic. One of the lessons here for us is that we need to point out this reality to those who deny God in our in our lives. We need to point them to the fact that God has spoken and God is watching from heaven. God sees them, whether they like it or not. And they will have to give an account to this God who gazes down upon them from heaven. And even that thought from God's word, planted in the heart of a fool, might just blossom, might just blossom into conviction of sin and lead that person to repentance. The fool's God gazes even upon the fool. But that's not the only way that the Lord gazes. We, We read later in Psalm 102, verse 19, that God also gazes upon his people. He looks down, the same phrase, the Lord looks down to pour out blessing and to work salvation for his people. And here there's a lesson for us, as we are sometimes surrounded by fools and dismayed at the foolishness of the world as it presses in upon us, we can take great comfort, we can have great confidence that God is watching over us, that he looks down upon us and he looks down to bless us, and that as we read later in the psalm, he is the one in whom we are able to take refuge, even as fools press in upon us that the Lord's gaze on us is a gaze of salvation and blessing and providential care for his people. The fool's God is a God who blesses those whom the fool persecutes. The fool may deny God, but God sees the fool, and God even restrains the fool. So we've seen the fool's heart, we've seen a bit of the fool's God, and we end this evening by thinking about the fool's hope. We come to verse 7 at the end, and as the, the lament over the fool and his heart and what that works in the world, what that works in God's people uh, is worked out, we come from lament to a cry for salvation, don't we? Do you see verse 7 once more? Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. It's a cry for God to save his people. And when we see that salvation taking place, when we see God at work for his people, our response ought to be one of joy and gladness. It's a prayer for deliverance from the fool, from the fools around us in verse 7. So we want to consider just as we end tonight, is there hope even for the fool and What God's word insists upon is, yes, there is. Yes, there is. And thanks be to God, there was hope for us because we too were once fools. And even now, if we're honest with ourselves, we still live foolishly many days, don't we? Falling into our own folly and sin. And so we can relate to the fool in that way. And there's hope for the fool just as there's hope for us. And that hope comes from listening carefully to God's Word. The fool, first of all, and we've already intimated this, the fool needs God's law. The fool needs to hear God's law. One of the only ways to awaken someone who is spiritually dead is, and and to lead them to the conviction of their sin, is to tell out God's commands and his laws to them. And Romans 3 makes that very clear that we are all together condemned by God's law. Jew and Gentile alike, all of us stand condemned as fools before God because we have broken his holy law and we have not lived up to his law. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3:23. In the context of Romans chapter 3, That means that God's law can be like a hammer that breaks through the stone-encased heart and mind of the fool because it can awaken a sense of sin and a sense of conviction of sin and drive that person to cry out and say, Lord, I need a Savior. The fool needs to hear God's law, but the fool needs to hear more than God's law. The fool must hear the gospel of God if there is to be any hope. And so we need to be prepared to share that gospel, not only, as we considered earlier, to draw out those who deny God around us, to show them their inconsistencies of thinking, to show them their inconsistencies of feeling, to show them that, in fact, they owe everything they have to the God who made them that they're accountable to this God. Not only do we have that responsibility in conversation, not only do we have the responsibility to speak God's law as a conviction of sin to the fool, we also must not stop short of proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we did that, we would only be leaving the fool either in her folly or without any hope. But there is hope for a fool, and that hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, as Romans 3 says, a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed through faith in the Lord Jesus. Oh, that salvation would come from Zion. In verse 7 of Psalm 14, we must pray for those around us who deny God who do not submit to the Lord. We must pray that the Lord would be good to them, crying out in the words of this verse, Oh, that salvation would come even for the fool, Lord. And we must be bold and clear to speak of the Lord Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, to those around us as well, as we claim even those fools whom we know for the Lord Jesus. And call them to repentance and faith. And we must also not forget to give thanks. As we see the Lord doing this work of salvation in, the, in our own lives, but especially in the lives of those around us. As we, see, as we see those cold hearts beginning to thaw. And hear those questions that are open to talk about spiritual things. We need to do, as this psalm enjoins us to do, rejoice and be glad as we see the Lord working powerfully, working powerfully by the gospel. The fool's heart, the fool's God, and the fool's hope. By God's grace, may we not ourselves be foolish, but may we engage with courage and with God's word in hand as we interact with those around us this coming week. Let's pray. Father, we